Well, last week we began a new uh, series um, in the book of First Timothy. So we're exploring this book from beginning to end, from front to back, in a uh, kind of week-by-week way, verse-by-verse verse kind of structure. It's good to study the Word of God that way. There are other ways to study the Word as well, but in this manner it's good to follow a train of thought of a particular author and book of the Bible as they address uh, what is the need in their day, and to learn of it in a way that we understand their context, even though different time, different place, the uh, the struggle of the hearts of humanity is very much the same. And so we find a lot of uh, relevancy. We find a lot of application for us in what we are exploring. We know that First Timothy is a letter written by a man named Paul, who was uh, one called of God, commissioned of God to serve faithfully and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he did so in a, in a way of traveling. He was one of those first missionaries with the gospel, and so all around the Mediterranean Rim, Paul traveled and shared and, and established churches and cities and so on, and Timothy was one of his uh, companions in that journey, partners in the gospel, and so Paul is close with Timothy. And so this particular letter uh, was sent from Paul to Timothy as he was ministering in the city of Ephesus among the believers there. Uh, some trouble had infiltrated the church, as we learned last week. And if you weren't with us, you want to jump online on the website or through the app, you can catch up from last week. But there was some trouble that infiltrated the church, particularly that there were some self-proclaimed false teachers that were teaching a different gospel than what Jesus Christ had commanded and commissioned Paul to teach. And the reason for that is clearly understood in understanding a little bit about Ephesus. It was a city in which there were many different philosophies of the age uh, and of the day that were present. It was, a, it was a port city. There was just much that was happening within uh, the culture of Ephesus. And so many different religions and so forth of the day were present, idol worship, uh, galore, and so on. And, uh, and so it was, it was woven right into the fabric of, of the culture in which Timothy was seeking to minister the gospel. Uh, and as a result, some had begun in the church to swerve, as the word used, swerve from sound doctrine, and were wandering away into pointless and meaningless discussions. Uh, their hearts had become deceived. In other words, they were, they were seeking to talk about things and to teach things in the church that had no business being part of the church. And so in this context, Paul charges Timothy to confront the false teachers and to teach what is sound doctrine. And in that, we know that the scriptures repeatedly express the importance of sound doctrine. Now, as a bit of a side note here and, and maybe practical uh, uh, help for you as parents or even grandparents with children in your home... Uh, coming out of last week, you might have been thinking, well, I understand the importance of trying to train my children in sound doctrine. What are some ways I can do that? Here is one idea uh, that you could consider. It is a method of teaching called catechesis, uh, meaning you use a catechism to teach doctrine. It's been used over the years in many different contexts. Perhaps it's been your experience growing up in a particular church denomination in which you went through a catechism class or whatever it might be. Uh, so some of you may be familiar with it in that way. Uh, it is a valuable exercise. It is a valuable spiritual discipline that you can utilize in your home. It doesn't have to be the way that you point your children to a, an understanding of Christ or of sound doctrine, but it certainly can be. So if you have the version notes there in the app that we uh, provide for you, uh, you can see some 
uh, resources there. The Westminster Catechism, the short version, is best in the family context. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism has been uh, used over the years, the Charles Spurgeon Catechism, as well as then a new form of that called the New City Catechism. I uh, would highly recommend you check that out, at least, parents. And there's a link on, through the version. You have to cut and paste those. They're not live links. But uh, the New City Catechism not only gives you the kind of question-answer format of a typical uh, catechism, but also gives you some other content to be able to utilize with your children. So I would strongly encourage you to consider that, at least, as a practical way within your home as parents or grandparents to consider and use something that can help Uh, point your children to Jesus. Now, the danger of catechism is that it can be uh, more centered on the memorizing and accomplishment of the catechism than on the authentic faith of following Christ. Uh, Many have found it difficult to come to true saving faith in Jesus because their trust was rooted in the catechism they experienced as a child. That was a testimony of a man that I just spoke with this week. Um, thinking he was a believer because he went through catechism, was confirmed and all of that, um, but realizing there was no true authentic faith and trust and relationship with Christ. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a bit of the challenge in the midst of it, but nonetheless, it is a wonderful tool that you can utilize uh, in your home. Uh, so sound doctrine, uh, it does not change or evolve over time. Uh, some would teach that it does. And unfortunately, that is why today churches and denominations are reversing their historical uh, doctrines of the faith. Um, And we see that throughout um, the church today in America and around the world, unfortunately. But part of their argument is that doctrine and practice must change with the times, that somehow our current culture means that doctrine has to track with us rather than us track with good, sound doctrine. Friend, I just want to share with you today, within the church, our methods can change of how we teach sound doctrine, but the truth of God does not change. Um, And that is part of our historic faith. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change, and neither does his truth. And the power of our doctrine is that it is grounded in the inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word of God, first and foremost. It also aligns with the historic doctrines of belief uh, in the church. And so uh, just one thing here for us to to be mindful of together this morning is that the truth of God does not change. Uh, And so the same truth that Timothy was charged with and entrusted with, as we read in this letter, is it's the same truth that you and I are entrusted with today uh, to hold to, to teach, to be sure we are not swerving from uh, what is of God's sound doctrine. And it is sound doctrine that leads to a rich and fully satisfying relationship with Jesus. It results in true joy in one's life. The fact that there is something that is of God's teaching and God's design that we can count on, that we can trust in, something that doesn't shift and change with the times where we might be questioning, like, well, what is it today that we're supposed to believe in, right? Uh, no, there's, there is a, a, a sound doctrine that God gives to us uh, through the history of the church as well as the, 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 the solid uh, foundation of his word that is unchanging um, that we can count on. And it brings to us a sense of assurance, a sense of groundedness, and ultimately true joy. Uh, So we noted last week that the problems in the church at Ephesus in which Timothy is ministering, uh, that they were due to the misuse of the law, 
that Old Testament law, the relationship of God and Israel, that which it was grounded upon, uh, the law as well as mixed with some Greek mythology and idol worship, all of this was kind of present within the context of Ephesus, and it began to infiltrate the church. We read of it by way of reminder in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, in which Paul tells Timothy, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Uh, So it's important uh, to know uh, that nowhere does the Bible teach that the law is unimportant or bad, but only has to be uh, used and understood correctly in order to understand its place within the context of, of God's teaching. The Bible tells us that the law is useful to declare God's holiness and to reveal our sinfulness, right? What does the law do? The law reveals the holiness of God. It kind of sets this standard that is in alignment with with the holiness and the righteousness of God. And as we look at that, it reveals our sinfulness because we understand, like, there's no way we can measure up to that. There's no way we can accomplish that which the law demands of us. And so the law keeps us pointed to the holiness of God, and it humbles us in acknowledgement of our sinfulness. Now, that may sound rather defeating and hopeless in and of itself, right? And that is true. I love what Mark Vrogop, who is the author of a book called Deep... Uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, which I would highly recommend to you uh, as a way of processing as believers how we understand suffering and lament and all of that. But what, what Mark says is that the law is wonderfully useful by being terribly hopeless. Right? Just let that sink in for a moment. The, wall, the law is wonderfully useful by being terribly hopeless. And so this is why we can't stop at just the law. This is why... Paul was so concerned about those who began to to revert back to just this foundation of the law. And they were teaching that within the church uh, without uh, the fullness of the person of Jesus Christ. And so we know that the law must point us to Jesus. He is the answer for that hopeless state that the law leaves us in. Jesus. Jesus. This is how he himself spoke of it in Matthew chapter 5, as uh, he gave what we refer to as his Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So what's Jesus saying? Say, listen, I haven't come to, to, to dismiss the law or to get rid of it. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to be the one to, that the law points to, right? As we look at the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, what does it do? It all points us to some need for someone, right, to be our answer. And Jesus is that answer. He is the Messiah, the anointed one who came. To, say, to seek and to save that which was lost. And so Jesus says, I come to fulfill, and, and nothing of it will be dismissed. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And there is the beauty of the gospel and what we learn in the scriptures. Right? We live in a blessed time in which we get to look back upon the cross and the resurrection of Jesus to find that he is the answer. There are many who lived before Jesus who had this understanding there is someone coming right? that will be that answer, but they didn't get to see that answer. We get to see that answer in Jesus, right? We're thankful for that. And as we understand that, we know too there is a future hope. 
the, 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 the understanding of the gospel provides not only salvation for today, but there's this future hope of eternity and the glory and the presence of God. There is an inheritance that is waiting for us as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of God. And so uh, we live in a day where there's this already nature of the presence of the gospel in Jesus Christ, and there's this not yet in which we wait for that future fulfillment and ultimate fulfillment of what is uh, ultimately dependent upon the work of Christ as well, right? Amen? And so uh, Jesus says, I come to fulfill the law. So everything points to him. Um, The wrath of God that you and I deserve was totally and once and for all satisfied in Jesus. That good news is what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. The difference between the law and the gospel is not merely an academic difference or just a matter of semantics. It is a matter of freedom and captivity. It is a matter of truth and error. It is a matter of faith and works. It is a matter of ultimately life and death. That's why Paul was so concerned. That's why he says to Timothy, listen, you got you to address this. You got to confront these false teachers. We've got to be, uh, remain grounded in the sound doctrine and in the truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Now, you might be tempted to ask, well, what's the big deal? What's, you know, wasn't the law just in the Old Testament? How is it relevant today? Uh, in what way can we be sidetracked by the law or deceived by the law today as they were then? Well, let me answer that with a question I ask people from time to time. In fact, it's a question that those being baptized have to answer here at Crossroads. So if you're desiring to be baptized in a few weeks, you might want to listen for a moment. Um, and this question is helpful because it reveals kind of our understanding of the gospel. That's all it's designed. It's not designed to trap someone or make them feel you know, embarrassed in how they answer. But, but it's just helpful. Like, hey, this helps us understand. How do, you, how do you understand the gospel and the grace of God? Here's the question. If you were to die today and when standing before God, he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer? Right? If you were to die today and standing before God, he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you answer? Many times people will answer things like, well, I hope I've done enough good things. Or the good in my life maybe outweighs the bad. Or I'm not a terrible person, so I hope God will let me in. That's oftentimes uh, the way in which a person will answer. Have you ever had someone describe to you that the way to heaven is by doing enough good things? That's that's a a perspective of relationship with God that is based upon the law, right? Our, our Our morality, our goodness, being a good person. I've heard it repeatedly in my life. Maybe that used to be your belief. Maybe it's your belief today. Maybe as you thought about that, you began to answer that question like, well, hopefully I'm a good person. I pray that today's message enlightens something for you of the grace of God. Here is the one answer I've never heard in response to that question. Because I'm perfect. Right? Nobody has ever answered that, that I've asked, has ever answered that question. Well, God should let me into his heaven because I'm perfect. See, every person, even without Christ has enough of a God-given moral compass to know that they are not perfect. And that's exactly the point of Scripture. 
In fact, the scripture tells us all of us are sinners by nature. We sin because we are sinners by nature. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So listen, a belief in good works is the foundation of every other religious system in the world except the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? If you examine it, you look at historically all of the religions of the world, what you will find is a basis of good works in some way appeasing and, and appealing to whatever God it is. That, that it's, it's based upon our merit. It's based upon our effort and our, our goodness and whatever it might be that would appease that God. Friend, listen, that's what makes the exception in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a message of grace. It is a message of grace. Grace is necessary because no one, none of us, can ever be good enough for God. Grace means we have received an undeserved gift. God has said, here is my son that I will offer, that, that will die upon the ground, as we sang about this morning, that our living hope, right? The one who will die and give of himself for your salvation. Paul knew that the gospel was a message of grace. He saw this in his own life. He knew that his salvation was not in keeping the law, not in being a good enough person. Verses 13 through 15 reveal that to us in 1 Timothy 1. It says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You see, Paul looked at his past. And note, as he looks at his past, he is not full of shame. It did not lead him to a point of concluding, you know, this, this idea of shame or, or, or you know, refusing to, to, to resisting God because of, of shame. He, he uses his past to tell his heart something about his Savior. And it leads to hope. Right? He, he looks at his past and doesn't live in his past and, and allow his past to fill him with shame. He, he looks at his past and he's like, man, look at who I was. And glory be to God, look at who I am today because of Christ Jesus. He used his past to revel in the grace of God. He says, I'm a blasphemer, meaning he spoke evil about Jesus. He's a persecutor, meaning he was, he was seeking to forcefully make others speak evil of Jesus as well. He was an insolent opponent. The New International, New International Version translates that, a violent man, even causing some to die because they claimed the name of Jesus. The good news, despite who Paul was, he says that he received mercy. He did not receive what he deserved. He was given a gift of God's grace that he did not deserve. The reason, Paul says, is because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Ignorance and unbelief. The two most basic characteristics of a person who is apart from Jesus. Ignorance and unbelief, not knowing and not believing. So he's not offering an excuse here of his ignorance and unbelief. Paul's not saying this is excuses me or my, ter my terrible conduct. 
nor is he saying that acting ignorantly means he's not accountable. What Paul is doing here is he's highlighting something to be warned about when we consider the beauty of God's grace. What is that he's warning us about? He's warning us about the willful rejection of the truth of God. It's dangerous to willfully reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and could possibly even put someone out of reach of repentance. Romans chapter 2, I offer as a way of explaining that a bit. He says, do you not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's other places in Hebrews and things like that that we could go to that, that speak of this danger of the willful rejection of the truth of the gospel. So Paul is using his story as a way of highlighting that. And he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I want you to picture gushing water here. Gushing water. You've seen a river overflow its banks. You've seen a tide come in, you know, and wreak havoc. You've seen that. And I want you to think of that overflowing gush of water. The Greek word for overflowed here is really a strong or an intense form. It's an overabundance of grace. Reminds me of John chapter 1, verse 16, when the Apostle Paul was revealing who Jesus was as the Word, God in the flesh. He says, for from his fullness we have all received, what? Grace upon grace. And that's written in such a way we could just kind of continue, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. As Paul is recalling his testimony, his story with Jesus... We clearly get the sense of his excitement and full embrace of God's grace. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. And it leads him to this point of saying this and concluding this in his own life. And I pray it's your conclusion as well that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Complete acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Why did Jesus come? To seek and to save the lost, to save sinners, to save you, a sinner who stands deeply in need of God's grace. Now, before we go any further into Paul's excitement here, I want to kind of throw the grace train, if you will, in reverse Some of you have maybe been sitting here thinking, what about verse 12? We kind of skipped right over that, and you're exactly right. Now that we've walked through Paul's kind of 30-second elevator version of his testimony, it'll help us better understand verse 12, in which Paul says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul says, I thank him. Friends, this word thank in the Greek is the word that means grace. Grace. It's translated both ways based on this context, right? Or the context of of how it's used in the scripture can be translated either grace or 
can be translated thanks. Because the two are tied together. The thought is this, to be shown grace, to be given a treasure you don't deserve, without question, results in thankfulness. Grace and thanks are interchangeable words in that way. The true gospel message, the grace of God offered to us through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, compels gratitude. Paul knows by personal experience that God's grace does some amazing things, and that's the first one we can kind of dwell on today, is that grace compels gratitude. Try this. Maybe today when you go into the park to brave the humanity, right? If you want to stir some excitement, do this. Go, go to the bank beforehand, because I know you all can do this. Just go to the bank, through the ATM, get out $100 million, <laughs> right? right? Take it with you into the park. And just find some random person that you don't know, some stranger, and walk up to them and say, hey, I want to give you this, no strings attached. Now, anybody who has any kind of right understanding of what is taking place there would be absolutely overwhelmed by that gift. They would be absolutely astounded, kind of in a jaw-dropping kind of way, right? Is that right? Anybody who has any kind of understanding, right understanding of what is happening there would be overwhelmed with gratitude. And this is why Paul routinely expresses a humble heart over and over in his writings, over and over he drives us to thankfulness in any and every circumstance. Why? Because it stems from his appreciation of God's grace in his life. So much so that regardless of the circumstances, and Paul was a man who found himself in some pretty challenging sin. Matter of fact, his life was was taken because of his stance for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was killed. He was a martyr. And Paul was thankful. And Paul references grace all the time. He references it in his his greetings in his letters, like Romans chapter 1, verse 7, grace to you. He he, he mentions it as kind of a summary of salvation in Galatians 2. He mentions the power over sin, right? We have God's grace, his power over sin in Romans 5, as the gift of ministry in Romans 12, as God's act of giving in Romans 8. I mean, it's just, it's an enormously important and central theme to the entire redemptive plan of God, God's grace toward you and me. And those who really understand the nature of God's grace and the devastating reality of their own unworthiness, they are filled with life-changing gratitude. In other words, this isn't like the child who needs to be told to say thank you. Right? Ever had to do that with a child? Somebody gives them, and I'll say thank you. No, this is like the child who is giving something that they, that they so appreciate that they kind of squeal with gratitude. Thank you, right? I love again what Rogop says about this grace. He says, this grace-saturated perspective is a game changer. It radically alters how you see everything, but especially yourself. Paul has a horrendous past, and I'm sure so do you. While you may not have 
committed the sins that Paul had, you still have things in your past that are embarrassing and disappointing and awful. Rather than denying the past, minimizing the past, or justifying the past, Paul does what grace-captivated people do. He views it through the lens of God's amazing grace. The shame of the past is eclipsed with the mercy of God. The past is still there, but the past is not supreme. God, through Christ, rescued you from yourself, end quote, right? I love how he frames that as grace-captivated people. Friend, are you a, a grace-captivated person in your relationship with God? What a thing for us to ponder for a moment. Every day. I think, well, yeah, there's times in my life. No, I like every day. Every day do you live as a grace-captivated person. We know that grace compels gratitude. We also know that grace strengthens you. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Strength and salvation, first of all, right? This strength to believe and have faith, God does that in you. God puts that mustard seed of faith in you, which enables you to respond in faith. God does that. Your salvation is not of your own doing. What is completely dead cannot be brought to life on its own. We are dead in our sins, friends. We cannot be brought to life on our own. God gives to us that seed of faith in our heart. That is of his grace to even do that. And we respond in faith. Paul writes of it in verse 16, he says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. This perfect patience, God's patience to put up with our sin as he awaits those who will come to know him. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter Another apostle of Christ agrees with Paul. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but his, is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the heart of God for you, friend, that he's patient toward us. Why? Because he's waiting for more to say yes. And Paul says, I... I'm that perfect display of God's grace and his patience. I mean, can you imagine what my life deserved? Can you imagine being that persecutor, insolent man, the violent man that I was toward faith in Jesus Christ? God was paid. My life deserved death in an instant. Yet God used my life as a display of his wonderful patience. Don't give up praying for your friends, for your family, that you've been praying for a long time to come to faith in Christ, friend. Right? Stay faithful. Keep trusting. Keep praying for their soul. Beyond that, it's God's grace that he grants to us that strengthens us to live, to live to the praise of his glory. God's grace strengthens us in salvation to be saved. God's grace strengthens us in everyday life. It's everyday empowerment through his Holy Spirit. This is not strength to do what you already do just a little bit better This grace of God is a God-given strength to live in such a way that you would never live unless God helped you to do so. 
I mean, just imagine what we're called to in the scriptures by way of forgiving one another as God and Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Can you do that on your own strength? No. That's a grace-enabled way of living toward others that only God provides. Serving one another with a selfless love, the agape love that Jesus models for us. The only way that we serve in that kind of capacity in a selfless manner, the only way we give and of a selfless manner is through the grace that God provides. We can look at all the one anothering of the scriptures and point to the fact of every single one of those that God calls us to, to bear one another's burdens and to serve all that. All that is only possible by God's grace. And this is worship. To live all of life to the praise of his glory through the strength God provides. So grace strengthens us. Number three, grace enables serving. Kind of the piggyback on what I just said. Paul says here in particular, because he judged me faithful, pointing me to his service. Now this might puzzle us when we first look at it, because Paul was anything but faithful. I mean, he just said it. I was a persecutor, right? I was an insolent man. I was a blasphemer. He was anything but faithful. But here he says, God counted him and judged him as faithful. Well, let's look for a moment at this. The word judged in the Greek language is an intense form of the word meaning to lead. What do you do when you lead? You move toward a place distinct from where you are, right? There's movement here. It means to command or esteem or to think or consider. It's the same word used in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 by the Apostle Paul when he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted. I judged it, if you will, as loss for the sake of Christ. So here's the point I think Paul is making. He's understanding God counted him as faithful or treated him as being faithful when he wasn't. That's grace. It's being given a power that you couldn't muster, and it's being treated in a way that you don't deserve. This is the only way we can be active servants in the kingdom of God. If God were to count us as faithful, even when we're not. What a blessing that is. What a gift of God's grace. Grace enables serving. Grace, number four, inspires worship. Even though Paul suffered, he could not help but give praise to the one who saved him and called him by his grace. I love this verse in verse 17. It just kind of sticks out here. It really doesn't fit within the context of what he's, what he's talking about here, but it's almost as if like he just is telling his story. He's writing this to Timothy, and his soul is just bubbling up with this gratitude and appreciation of God's grace. And he just can't help himself, and he writes right here in the middle uh, of this passage, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. that ever happened in your life? Where you just kind of, as you ponder the good news of Jesus Christ and the grace of God that has been shown to you, does, does it ever just happen in your life where you just kind of just bubble up with this praise that overflows from your soul? Maybe some of you today, maybe why God has you here this morning, because you just, you're a follower of Christ, you're a son of God, but, but you, just, you just needed a good dose of reminder. 
And maybe today's that day when, first time in a long time, your soul just begins to, to percolate with this gratitude and this thankfulness. And you just, just shout it out as you're walking down one of the streets at, at the festival today. Right? Just shout it to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only true God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You might get some looks, but that's okay. <laughs> Parents, listen. I mentioned something like using a catechism at the beginning, which is helpful. So much stronger than that, I think, is if you as a parent, as a mom or a dad, if you're a single parent, married, whatever, like wherever you're at in your relationship with Christ, I think far more powerful than getting your children to memorize a question and answer and all that, which is good, is that they see in you, that they see in you a deep, Swelling gratitude for the grace of God in your life. There is nothing more powerful than that in my mind. Grace inspires worship. As we sing songs, we come. Sorry, getting off track here. But when we sing songs and we come, listen. I pray it's just an over... And worship is not confined to music. I want you to know that. Worship is your whole life. Don't confine worship to just singing songs. Right? The singing of songs together is a, is a way of expression. It's a tool that God has given to us as humanity to express what ought to be the overflow of our heart in everything that we do. Right? But when we sing, when we come together in a gathering like this that we have on a, on a weekly basis, like, man, is your heart brimming with that thankfulness? And I know there are challenges. I know there's suffering. And I know that, but that's why Paul draws us to his testimony. He says, listen, in any aspect of life, every circumstance we find in Paul's life in the scriptures, he's, we find him also rejoicing. Because he's convinced of the power of God's grace in his life. That even suffering is something we can do to be counted worthy of following Jesus. Grace inspires worship. Number five, grace is a blessing, not a demand. And you might find a better way to kind of phrase this last point I want to unpack just for a moment with you. But the way I, I express it, grace is a blessing, not a demand. In other words, it's something God loves for us to, 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 to live in the midst of with him, but it's not something he necessarily demands us to, to, to respond to. Right? God doesn't create us as robots. Verse 18, he says, this charge, Paul says to Timothy, this charge to not abandon or forsake God's grace, but to declare and hold firm the gospel. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. If we were to fast forward for a moment to 2 Timothy, the next letter that Paul writes to him, he says, and Timothy, you're going to be entrusting that same message to other faithful men who can take and teach that in the church as well, right? We see this generational, this, this, this multiplying of, of faithful teachers of the word and, and those who will hold to the gospel. He says, I entrust it to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting Rejecting this, some have made it a shipwreck of their faith, um, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, 
whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's not a handing over out of a maliciousness. That's a handing over. Paul saying, listen, they, I, I want them to see the error of their way, right? Lord, use this as a, in this, their life to, to point them, to draw them back to Jesus, convict them of their sin, so on. Right? This isn't a malicious thing Paul is saying, but it, it, he, he acknowledges the blessing it is to receive God's grace, and we're clearly called to be good stewards of the message that we have been entrusted with. But it's not something God demands of it, of us. And, and some, unfortunately, have made a shipwreck of their faith, he says. They've become distracted. They've swerved from sound doctrine. And their life is like a shipwreck. Unfortunately, we see that today, too. Right? Words we might use today is something like, Christians who are deconstructing their faith or whatever it might be. That temptation was real then, it's real now. God's grace is a blessing. It's not a demand. It's not something that God forces us to respond to. How are you handling the gift of God's grace in your life? Maybe today, friend, you need to see that gift for the first time for real. And today's the day when you start a relationship with Jesus Christ. When you get on your knees and you say to God, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I don't get it all. I might not know all the answers. But God, what I do know is that my life, it lived in my way, is not doing the trick. And I see that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I believe Jesus Christ is him whom you sent to seek and to save what was lost. And I'm lost and I want to be found. Maybe today's that day when you get on your knees and for the first time you confess your complete dependence on the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of God. Not thinking of yourself in any way like, man, I've got to do this for God. I've got to do that for God. Like, friend, we don't earn our relationship with God and we don't earn the right to keep our relationship with God. in his love and his grace I want you to leave here today more in love with God than you ever have been I want you to leave here today more appreciative of God's grace in your life than you ever have been and I've shared with you what God has given to put on my heart to share with you and now it's I'm going to leave the rest of the spirit. We're going, to, we're going to have a time of communion here to end. We're going to finish with a couple of songs. If you don't know what communion means for us, it means we have a time in which we take of bread and cup, remembering the body of Christ that was given for us, the blood of Christ, acknowledging it's only through the blood of Jesus that we have forgiveness of sin. So communion is a really important time that God gave to the church. We call it an ordinance. I believe it's something that is commanded of us to do. And we do faithfully at least once a month. And it's a time for us just to be reminded, to keep ourselves grounded in sound doctrine, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so wherever you're at in this today, I pray these next few minutes are just something the Spirit uses in your life. And you can respond in this. You can use this time how you want. We'll let the elements be passed. Please make sure you grab both cups out of the tray so that you get both the bread and, and the and the juice, make sure you remember those center cups are gluten-free. So for those of you that need that option, we want to provide that for you. But as you take those cups, just let this time, you can sing along with the songs if you want. 
You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel. Use this time. We'll take the elements together at the end as the body of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Fathers, we think about these things. We love you. Thank you for your grace. I pray, Lord, that today is a reminder. Perhaps today is a first time of understanding truly your grace. May your spirit remove the veil, remove the callousness from our hearts. For those who are dead, Lord, make them alive in Christ. For those of us who are alive in Christ, give us a renewed sense of gratitude for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.